You're listening to episode 161 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 27th of August 2021 here in Norwich. How are you doing, Steph? I'm not too bad, thank you. Nice to be podcasting with you again on this quite sunny Friday. Sunny, but there's a massive black cloud just outside. Yeah, it's it's looming horribly, isn't it? And uh, I realised we haven't done this for a while, so I'm going to ask you, what are you reading? Oh, very exciting. Well, I'll tell you, I did a very classic thing last week whereby I've got a big stack of to-be-read books by my bedside, as everyone probably does. But I decided I'd take a trip to the library anyway, just for fun, because I haven't walked around the library and had a browse for a while. Came back with no less than six books, six, (laughs) and then two books that I'd had on, on hold for months suddenly appeared at the same time the next day. So I now have eight books from the library to get to. So uh, that's going to be hard work. But I am currently reading my second one from the library, which is a couple of years old. I missed the, I hate to say the hype, but this was a popular book at the time. It's called Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who I believe is an American novelist. And uh, I decided to finally read this because I believe Taylor's most recent book, Malibu Rising, has just come out. And this is, it's kind of like, have you ever seen the film Almost Famous? I have. Yes. So it's kind of like that in book form. So it's it, it's structured through the form of kind of interviews, almost like you were watching a documentary or something and reading the script. Interviews with a fictional rock band that rose to fame very quickly in the 70s with a female lead singer called Daisy Jones. And it's kind of the story of their rise and fall, like their very quick and very sudden rise and fall. Um, so I've almost finished it, absolutely smashed through it in a few days. I can see why everyone enjoyed it. It's very, very addictive and very clever written actually i like the the kind of interview style yeah excellent sounds good and yeah you've you've got to read through those books quickly given the size of your pile i know it's quite stressful to look at i don't know why (laughs) i did that to myself but it was one of those magical (laughs) moments where every book i had thought of in the past sort of year or so where i was kind of like oh i'd really like to read that was just magically in front of me on the shelves i was like oh i better get that as well eight books (laughs) yes well i'm reading Lots of stuff at the moment because as part of the East Anglian Book Awards, I'm reading a lot of the books for the Children's Award, which I have to say is a complete joy. And the the shortlist is so amazing. And it's kind of reminded me just how good children's books can be. I mean, I read a lot of kids' books anyway with my son, who's eight, but kind of having to read lots of books in quick succession, mostly by myself, for for the purposes of judging this thing. But Mm. the creativity and variety is is so rich um but i can't really talk about any of those at the moment because they were well guarded uh, secret but how exactly. amazing that not only are they all brilliant but they're all from east anglia too so just goes to show how much amazing writing talent we have in this area for all of those books to be either set in or you know from around here and so it'll be great yeah exactly um and you know i'm just I'm so happy that children have such incredible high quality material to read mm. these days. I mean, like when I was growing up, there was good stuff around, but I feel like kids today just have such a such a richer, more diverse kind of palette of things to choose from. It's brilliant, which kind of leads me into the book I was actually going to say that I'm reading because uh, it's kind of connected. Um, so I'm reading a comic called Lumberjanes at the moment. It's co-created by. Uh, Noelle Stevenson, Shannon Waters, Grace Ellis, and Brooklyn A. Allen. And it's kind of like a, a scout holiday camp for hardcore lady types. 
Amazing. Hardcore lady types. Yeah, uh, it's completely brilliant. It's got a, a, a slightly mad kind of fantasy twist to it, which I haven't quite worked out yet. But, you know, they're going on whitewater rafting and then get attacked by a giant tentacle monster and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, yeah, the artwork's lovely and the dialogue's brilliant. But the reason I ended up here is that uh, I just finished watching a TV show on Netflix uh, with my son called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Ooh. which is a remake of the 1980s cartoon that I watched when I was a kid. And this new version is the showrunner was Noel Stevenson, who is one of the writers on Lumberjanes. And She-Ra is one of those kid shows where you start watching it with your child. And then by the end of the show, you're just as invested in it <laughs> as they are. Uh, Wonderful. And it kind of completely transcends being like a kid show and is just one of the best TV shows I've ever seen, I think. So I'm basically now on this kind of mission to read everything that Noel has ever done. Oh, I love doing that. Yeah, when you discover a new writer or a new yeah artist of any kind and you just want to go back and explore everything they've ever done, that's always good fun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, very exciting. Can't wait to discover more of, more of their stuff. And I may have to investigate how to get them onto the show. Aha. So, Steph, uh, lots of stuff going on at the centre at the moment. Um, As always. In particular, yeah, exactly. I mean... We don't need to state that, do we? It's just the, <laughs> the natural state of affairs. Uh, but we have our Creative Writing Online courses on sale at the moment, uh, several of which have already sold out, but there are some places still available, right? Yes. So these are our online courses designed in partnership with the University of East Anglia. Uh, the 12 or 24 week online courses that you can study in your own time from home or wherever you can get Wi-Fi with your laptop. And the real benefit of these is that you get to study with a small group. It's about 15 places per course, very small group. And you get personalised feedback on your work each fortnight from the tutor. Uh, these courses are beginning in September and October, so quite a few of them start on the 20th of September, I believe, and a couple are rolling over to early October. Historical fiction, memoir and crime fiction are already fully booked. We've got one place left on creative nonfiction, and then we only have a very small handful of places left on all of our other courses, which are script writing, fiction and poetry, and also our 24-week more intensive course for fiction, which is called Writing Fiction Next Steps, which you can apply for now. So make sure you head over to the website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk to take a look at those and book your place. Yeah, these courses are, are really great because it's a proper investment for that time period, helps you get on with your writing, knuckle down and get the words down, and there's a tutor present all the way through. So it's not a kind of anonymous online course. You know, you do get a tutor who is there looking at your work and offering feedback and interacting. And we see a lot of the, the writers who go through these courses then end up on our Discord channel as well and kind of have the pleasure of seeing what they do afterwards there as well uh, talking of which if you would like to join our discord community which is completely free and full of lovely writers from all around the world you can do so by following the link down in the podcast show notes so simon who have we got on the show today so we are joined by tom wyman who has written a book called infinitely full of hope fatherhood and the future in an age of crisis and disaster which when I uh, heard about this book, I thought this sounds this sounds like something I should read because I, I have a, a kind of anxious tendency to catastrophize slightly, uh, <laughs> which I found intensified when I had a child. I think particularly at the moment, obviously with the pandemic, that makes everything harder. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the climate crisis that is increasingly in the news, as it should be, 
Um, but you know, these are difficult times to remain hopeful in for all kinds of reasons. And Tom's book takes a look at the concept of hope from a kind of philosophical perspective, defines, you know, what is hope? Why should we have it? Can we have it? How do we maintain it? That kind of stuff. And he wrote this book during the time his partner was pregnant with his child. So it's got this kind of perspective of about to become a father. I had a great chat with Tom talking about the creation of the book and also his approach to hope and how he's kind of had to respond to the pandemic as well. This book came out, I think, just before the pandemic. And then obviously that happened and it kind of puts puts everything that he wrote in a, an interesting and different context. But yeah, really interesting examination of how to write a philosophical text, but with a, a kind of very accessible, kind of slightly memoirish angle to it. Absolutely fascinating. So let's dive into your conversation with Tom Wyman. Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. Hi. So we're talking about your book, Infinitely Full of Hope, Fatherhood and the Future in an Age of Crisis and Disaster. And when uh, I first heard about the book and it was sent over to us, I kind of immediately thought, oh, this seems very familiar to me because a lot of the feelings that you're expressing and exploring in the book uh, really reminded me of exactly how I felt when my son was born. So I was excited about reading something that kind of explored that in greater detail and you know, hopefully gave me uh, some reasons to hope. And certainly, you know, it's not that having a child kind of is the only way you can think about these things, but I certainly found for myself that having a kid definitely stopped me thinking. Like, it made me think less about myself and more about their future. And then that kind of extends your your personal timeline a bit further, I think. And in terms of this particular book, it's kind of part memoir, part reflection on becoming a father and part philosophical theory. And I was wondering how you settled on that particular mix for the book. I mean, really just sort of fit the... the- form sort of just fit the content I suppose I have always been a bit sort of frustrated with the ways that um, you know you're expected to express uh, philosophical ideas in academic journals and that sort of thing where you're meant to adopt a sort of faux objective tone and I have sort of independent theoretical commitments, which uh, imply that, you know, there's no actual purely um, objective, so to speak, perspective. What you think, um, how your ideas are formed as a, as a philosopher, as, as anyone really, are um, informed, um, at least in part, by how you know, you live your life, how you obtain the things you need in order to uh, survive by your kind of material position um, in society. And uh, sort of pretending to sort of easy objectivity, um, as it were, kind of easy neutrality, um, obvious obfuscates um, that position um, and makes the ideas that you're exploring you know, I think kind of it, 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 you know harder for a, a reader to sort of um, to understand in a way because it sort of hides the it's like you're sort of you 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 you're kind of hiding the joints, um, as it were, or hiding the strings um, behind you over the pulling your ideas, um, and so I thought it would be more honest 
to um, explore the philosophical ideas that, you know I was exploring, which were obviously deep, you know motivated by well, my by my personal situation and thus were deeply personal to me. I thought it'd be more honest to make all that explicit. You know, has the sort of hopefully has the sort of side effect of being sort of easier to relate to as well. You know, so I I guess I you know I was inspired in a way by well I list some of the books I was inspired by at the start of the book actually. Mm. Um, you know, other thinkers who sort of do something similar to this, like um, Adorno and Minima Moralia, or um, Curiously, an interesting example of this would be the novel Vallis by Philip K. Dick, which was about his own sort of you know, Gnostic religious experiences and the conclusions he drew from them. Or um, Love's Work, Gillian Rose's memoir, where she talks about sort of her unhappy love life and uh, and terminal illness and how that sort of uh, you know affected her philosophical perspective. So I sort of wanted to sort of emulate those models in, in, in a way and yeah, produce something that um, you know. Obviously, if you think there's no, there's no sort of purely, ultimately objective perspective in it. All ideas are informed by someone's sort of material position within society. Well, by making those things clear, you know, you can can allow people to see. Well, he only thinks this because of X or you know, X Y Z. Um, I think differently because I'm from this particular position. Blah blah blah. And, you know, I just, I hope it was successful, I suppose. Yeah. No, I think having the context of, of who you are and, and the circumstances, both both your personal circumstances, but also the kind of the time in which you were writing it um, from a, a personal and also that kind of global perspective, you know, it, it roots it in a particular time and place, which, you know, I don't read a huge amount of kind of philosophy texts and I found this really approachable. Mm-hmm. I like the way it combines, you know, you, you quote a lot of philosophers in here and um, a lot of texts that I'm not familiar with, but you wrap it up in a way that for someone who is not used to reading that kind of stuff is extremely approachable. Yeah, thanks. And in terms of the timeline of writing it, did you kind of, did you write it in real time during the pregnancy? Just in terms of process, were you writing it during that period or was some of it kind of reflective looking back? Um, so the first two Two chapters were basically written and finished during the period when my partner was pregnant, and so was much. So was the introduction. So sort of about half of the book was. By the time my son was born, I had most of chapter three done. But, you know, the last chapter from the conclusion were a lot harder to write because I had a newborn. <laughs> um, but you know, it was sort of I already had those sort of bits. I you know I had bits of them sketched out. I had bits of them sketched out. I while I was writing, I had a a, a friend sent us this um, baby like this moleskin baby journal thing as a present, where you kind of you it says on the on the front cover, record your pregnancy and baby's first two years. But I wrote a lot in that while my uh, sort of like you know diaristic stuff while my partner was pregnant. I, I think I've written it about twice since my son was born. I haven't had time. So, but I, I sort of, I, I sort of adapted um, a lot of that stuff into the later chapters and the conclusion. So, sort of passages were written in real time, but then it was sort of edited later on and sort of considered and reflected on later on, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing was sort of brought together and sort of finalized actually just before the first lockdown. So that was when it was sort of had been beaten into a sort of completed shape. 
you know, I mean, this is the thing about the, you know, the book is sort of a pre-pandemic, <laughs> it's not just a pre-baby, but it was a pre-pandemic book. And a lot of the positive proposals I have for like, how do we cultivate hope right now have been sort of complicated a lot more by the fact of a pandemic. You know, I talk about how we can sort of, you know, things like cultivating virtues like solidarity have become really hard. It's become really hard to do because we've been so forcibly separated from one another and sort of further sort of atomized and isolated. Yeah. And um, that's been, you know, really uh, sort of troubling, (laughs) bad. And, uh, you know, also like I suppose just looking after a child in the, you know, pandemic years, it, it can be quite easy to, obviously it's exhausting all of the time not having childcare and not being able to see people and things like this. And so it becomes a sort of, comes harder to do things sort of, you know, altruistically because you kind of think that um, you end up thinking, well, of course, all I really need is to get through the next few days and for my child to be okay. So it becomes harder to act. And then, because, you know, in solidarity with others and to think in solidarity with others, you end up thinking about, you know, something like a pandemic response, you just end up thinking of your own priorities and your own needs rather than those of others. Yeah, and I think it's complicated because the, the news, which, you know, rarely does any of us any favours when it comes to being hopeful, but, you know, the news will always focus on, you know, parts of society that are, are not in solidarity with everyone else. You know, it will focus on the people who yeah. are having massive house parties when they shouldn't or who are breaking yeah. rules and, you know, it never focuses on the vast majority of people who, who kind of, even if we're isolated, you know, are working together for this kind of you know, common yeah. common cause. Now, this has been one of the sort of paradoxes, I suppose, of the, the pandemic, right? It's that solidarity has ended up looking like staying away from one another. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's really difficult. And it's also really difficult to to raise a child in because, you know, my son doesn't know the world except as in the pandemic years, really. Um, and only recently has he been able to really um, interact with other children and play with other children in a sort of um, consistent way. Um, And, you know, as we sort of came out of the sort of long winter lockdown, he was terrified of other Mm. people. Um, And he just thought it was just, you know, he was was just scared of having to socialise. He's got a lot better now and he loves it. Um, But I sort of, I'm terrified of him losing that. I mean, it's hard enough for adults coming out of some of these lockdowns, I think, let alone very young children who have not experienced anything else. Yeah. Um, and I suppose you only know, we're only going to know in, in, in the future what effects that's had long term on these on these children. I mean, I suppose I've already, you already hear sort of teachers who are already sort of anticipating children who've been through the pandemic starting school and stuff like this or, or graduating from school or just being in school and having sort of these very, having sort of like, you know, presenting sort of having new, new sort of emotional needs that they're not used to dealing with and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a that's a, a big problem, and something we need to sort of um, you know think about how we're going to navigate as a society. But we really do lack the um, institutional structures that will allow us to do that, and that can be a source of despair. So yeah, I mean, there's new challenges, new challenges. Ahead. Yeah, and I think you know, as I was reading it, cause I think um, I think COVID gets a mention right at the end of the book, um, and yeah. you know, as I was reading it. You know, it's it's kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? I mean, as it is with every conversation that we've had in the last year. Um, 
but yeah, it's kind of constantly on the mind. And and also, as I was reading your book, I was also simultaneously hearing about heat domes in America and oh, God, now yeah. the floods in Europe. And, and, you know, it's kind of this endless onslaught of bad news, I suppose. Um, but reading that alongside your book where, you know, you kind of examine hope and pull it apart and define what it is to you and then and then look at you know is there hope is, is there any purpose in even thinking about hope um it was yeah that kind of juxtaposition of reading this book in a time that is even harder than the one in which you wrote it in <laughs> um definitely gave it a kind yeah. of an unexpected extra context i guess I mean, I think for I mean, certainly the sort of climate stuff is is it was was very much at the forefront of my mind when I wrote the book. I mean, it's just it's just the, the sort of um, terrifying reality that every summer um, there's a, you know it, sort of, it, it, it impacts us um, in a sort of novel way. Um, we had to be I know what what who'd heard of a heat dome before, mm. um, you know that sort of thing. So, um, but. Um, uh, uh, I, I think you know. It's just it, I suppose the, the crucial point for people who are interested in the book is that um, we have hope as long as things can be different, right? You know, as long as we're able to act as I uh, use, use a phrase I use in my book, kind of transformatively in the world. Um, as long as future generations might do things differently to us, as long as we might do things differently to previous generations. We do have hope. We can only despair if we think, well, this is not, not only is this really bad now, but its logic will just be extended ad infinitum into the future. The, I suppose the challenge for anyone who um, wants to champion hope is to show that it doesn't have to be. Um, it's, it's to show that, thing, that we actually could do things differently and things can be different and we're not just all... Um, simply blankly do because the current logic is unbreakable. So and that's a difficult, you know, that's, that's very, very difficult. Um, but that's the sort of state of play. But, but part of it is there's a kind of Pascal's wager element to hope because, you know, either we resign ourselves to our doom or we try and find some way to sort of swim against the tide. Mm. Um, and we know when you have children, when you haven't defined yourself having children, Maybe it's maybe it's just, it, you're kind of especially kind of forced into that decision just to swim against the tide because what the hell else are you going to do? Um, you know, <laughs> you have to look after this thing and hope that it has a good enough life. Yeah, so that sudden uh, your perspective has shifted away from yourself towards this brand new yeah. thing <laughs> that has appeared. Um, which yeah, I certainly found that kind of altered my perspective on. Well, basically everything. I, mean, I don't think I don't. You know, obviously, I don't, I don't want to kind of claim that having children is like the only way to to be a good person or something like this, or to sound like I'm making my claims. I'm certainly not. But it's just a kind of like a jolt of awareness, right? Um, you know, it can be. I, I found it very easy to sort of lazily capitulate to despair before I had a child um, on a personal level, and uh, and I found it impossible to do that since since I found out I was having a child. Yeah, I guess different people will probably get that jolt from different things. But yes, yeah. certainly yeah, for yeah. me, having a child was was the thing that gave me that jolt. Something I uh, I didn't expect in the book, but thoroughly appreciated, were some of the kind of unexpected references to popular culture, particularly the the Planescape Torment reference that's in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. you know, for someone like me, where you know I don't read philosophy texts generally. 
I found some of those little references here and there to things that I did know really helpful because they were kind of like these little navigational anchors to, to kind of get me from one point to the next. Um, was that something that you included kind of deliberately to kind of open the book up to people who are maybe not as familiar with some of the concepts or some of the the, the academic side of, of philosophy writing? Or was that is that just your interests anyway? Yeah, it's really just my interest anyway, to be honest. Um, it's just how I talk anyway. I kind of like, uh, I suppose I did want the, the book to feel, as much as a, as a sort of rigorously argued philosophy book can feel, I wanted it to feel like you were sort of having a conversation with someone. Um, so I just didn't want to disguise ways in which I would naturally sort of talk or kind of comparisons I would sort of naturally make, you know. So uh, it just sort of, yeah, it's just sort of a, uh, it wasn't something I consciously thought about. It's just something I sort of do. I suppose it's a sort of habit, right, because um, I do lots of writing for um, non-academic publications anyway. And, um, you know, you get positive reinforcement when you compare things to uh bits of popular culture people like so you just keep doing it uh but so, i mean certainly something like uh, playscape torment is just something i sort of played over and over again when i was a kid so it just it's just in my head um if i if i spot a resonance of playscape torment and it's gonna get included <laughs> something i mean you talked about it a little bit already actually in terms you know you're saying that you don't really go down the the route of being this kind of objective omnipotent watcher philosopher who's mm. speaking the universal truth kind of thing you know you you're you're, mm. you're very much you know th- this book is written by you and it's your your thoughts and opinions and hence you know you, you, your pop culture interests are in there as well um mm. and, and equally your political leanings are you know extremely evident in it and you, you, you know you don't shy away <laughs> from scathing criticisms of boris johnson and brexit and that kind of thing did you ever I mean, how did you kind of settle on the on the tone for some of that stuff? Like, do you ever consider make, trying to make it more politically neutral? I suppose to maybe appeal to a wider range of people, or was that just unavoidable? I think it's just unavoidable, really, because like I suppose, like you know, I I, I I'm sort of uh, again in in terms of this sort of like you know, in, 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 as, as I was trying to argue this, you know, as myself and to kind of show you my workings, as it were, right. I, I, I'm not just led to the sort of um, political conclusions I have been sort of on a, on a, on a whim, right? They sort of come from a particular, a particular place and a particular perspective. You know, if people disagree with me, I'm happy to argue with them. But I, I suppose I, w- I would hope, one thing I don't, you know, I, I would hope that people would be able to, um, you know, to to get something out of a book, even if they come from, uh, even if their own political convictions are slightly different, because if you're sort of uh, uh, approaching the text honestly, then I, I would hope that you are at least able to sort of see how I've come to the conclusions that I that I have. So, or kind of charitably, if you come to the text charitably, then I would hope that you're able to see how I've come to the conclusions that I have. Um, I know that lots of people don't like this because they feel that if you're kind of arguing things from a sort of, uh, I mean, especially people kind of are suspicious of sort of left-wing perspectives from this, um, you know, for this reason, because I think they think that everyone on the left is going to be very moralistic towards them if they um, don't immediately subscribe to their own particular faction <laughs> of the left. And I do think that's nonsense. I mean, I think that's just a sort of way of keeping us apart from one another and, 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 and not really seeing what we need to do 
um, as a sort of planet, as a species, as a society, in order to actually, you know, to 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 make our lives sustainable and 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 better. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there would have been absolutely no point, I think, in concealing my political uh, leanings, if not just because of how. So, I mean, how centrally important sort of left-wing political theory in particular is to how I how I think about hope. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, um, but I would, I would, I mean, I would hope that people who um, weren't like a, a committed socialist or anything could get something out of it, in part because I'm, I'm not just, I'm not writing this as a, as a, as a, as a recruiting pamphlet or something. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> just writing this as an honest assessment of where we are, like, with the concept of hope and sort of, in, as a society, as a, as a mm, world. Yeah, and I suppose your examinations of, of hope uh, in, in terms of you know, its definition and you know that is kind of separate to how you then connect it into the real world in some ways. Um, mm. So, you know, the, what that means for you contextually in your life uh, is is almost, it's, you know, it's very connected, but but the way you examine hope as a concept is, is another thing almost. Yeah, and exactly. Well, like, this is how... Um, you know, another way in which sort of, I suppose, a specifically philosophical treatment of things sort of is, is going to proceed. But you're going to kind of um, make assertions at sort of different levels of uh, uh, sort of, I suppose, essentialness um, in a way. Um, but you know, or different levels of universality. Some things you're going to say about hope are going to be true across. Um, sort of historical and cultural context and things like this and other things are going to be much more specific um, to the world we live in right now the, the way we have hope, the, only, the only real way we can kind of lay claim to hope right now given where we are you know as a planet um, is if we find some way of um, dealing with the climate crisis um, and um, I mean some sort of political perspectives on that are going to be denialist in which case I think that's just, um, well, it's incompatible with being hopeful. It, it might be kind of optimistic in a sense, but it's not really <laughs> hopeful and uh, because it doesn't do anything to make us hopeful. And, um, but, and, and, and beyond that, the only questions are a strategy, right? I mean, I suppose if you're um, on the left, you might think, um, you might be more inclined to think that um, the climate crisis is going to be resolved through kind of popular action, and if you're kind of more right-leaning, you might think it's going to be resolved sort of by market forces and technology and things like this. Um, but either way, you have to do you have to do something. You have to think in a sort of a, at least sort of minimally public-minded way about the problem. What struck me as I was reading, because I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm very much in your neck of the woods politically <laughs> and how I see society. So you know, it chimed with me, and I I kind of fit into it in the arguments you're making really easily but in the back of my mind I was wondering you know um for people who voted say for Brexit you know that was an act of hope from their perspective um and same with you know voting for Trump or something which you know to my mind I I can't wrap my head around that but that was you know how how their brains were working in that direction and yeah I was just kind of curious about how someone from that perspective might encounter your book and whether that was ever in the back of your mind yeah, I mean, um, I suppose, I suppose you know that's a good um, that's a good point. I mean, I suppose um, it is it, there are um, certainly hopeful uh, elements to um, those movements. I mean, if I'm talking about hope as involving, you know, an attempt to 
um, act transformatively in the world. I mean, um, they are efforts to bring about a kind of break with how we were governed previously. Uh, the biggest quibble I have is just with, um, you know, I suppose it's sort of the facts on the ground. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and also I suppose the objectives of what those movements hope to achieve are based around a lot of, um, you know, merely wishful thinking and outright delusion, um, which I, yeah, uh, you know, so, and, and then also, also I think, I suppose, um, there's sort of obviously reactionary elements to those uh, movements, um, which seem like they might uh, fly against um, a certain spirit of hope um, because they're not sort of, even if they're kind of most hopeful, they're not hoping that, um, you know, things would be better in a way they hadn't been before. I was hoping for a kind of recapture of some sort of past glory. I think there's a sort of, from a historical perspective, you can show that that past life wasn't actually good and there's a reason why it went away. Um, so, yeah. But, I, you know, I, these movements are sort of complicated anyway because, um, you know, what the sort of Tory politicians and people like this wanted to get out of Brexit is, isn't, was very different to what a lot of Brexit voters hope to get out of Brexit. And, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, they're much more multifaceted problems than you can, uh, and phenomena, and you can really cover in a book about hope, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From a kind of a nuts and bolts kind of perspective, I suppose, um, I'm just curious about, you know, th- th- there's a lot of quotes in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, you reference a lot of other philosophers, and I was just wondering, uh, from a, a philosophy text perspective, what kind of how you go about striking that balance between you know referencing the the, the previous people who you're drawing upon their work and commenting on their work or you know putting something new into it and and creating your own kind of new material just from a purely kind of structural perspective how do you go about balancing that th- through a text? Yeah, I mean, I think probably, I mean, the answer. Um, the honest answer is probably that um, sort of instinctively um, much less well than I did in the final text because um, sort of most, the bulk of the edits I um, was requested to make by the publisher um, were about reducing the amount of quotes for the book. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, well, you know, one sort of, one of my favourite books is um, uh, The Rings of Saturn by uh, W.G. Seabelt. And I think one of the things I like that Seabelt does is, you know, he tells... He sort of constructs this sort of composite narrative out of these sort of various by sort of like quoting and citing sort of the lives and works of others, um, and you know I'm, it's not quite what I uh, set out to do in in, in my book, but it's it's sort of it's a similar sort of ballpark. My personal thinking has always been shaped by these other writers who. Um, you know, my experience, my encounter with whom has sort of been a um, a very fundamental part of my experience of the world, and so I I wanted to be able to in, in, incorporate as much of their own, or appropriate I suppose perhaps as much of their own words as I I, I could sort of as my own <laughs> words, uh, in part because they express things in ways which I, you know I couldn't 
do myself. Yeah, it feels like hope as, as a concept is something that kind of constantly needs renewing. And mm. I was wondering, you know, you've written this book. Is this your kind of final word on <laughs> hope, or is it is it something you imagine you'll be potentially coming back to either in other books or other forms? I mean, you know, um, never say never. I suppose. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I would find it very difficult to write. I mean, in all honesty, I would find it very, very difficult to write this book right now, um, mm. in the present moment. Um, so, uh, and you know, <laughs> you know, I've been sort of uh, thinking more about how my what I wrote in the book is sort of challenged by um, uh, Schopenhauer, and who I don't. I mentioned him a book, but I didn't, didn't didn't really engage about much in a book, um, and how he his argument to the effect that um, uh, well, basically, transformative action in the world is impossible because we're all the sort of blind slaves of this uh, infinite sort of blind will, um, which uh, just repeats itself across generations. Um, and if he's right, then we are all really doomed, and uh, there is no hope. Um, so I've been thinking about that more. You know, I don't. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with him. By the way, I, I, I mm. still think my argument holds up, in part because I designed my argument to be compatible with the worst sort of pessimism, um, but also because Schopenhauer is a bit inconsistent in the way he reasons about this. But I'm thinking about that more. Um, so, so that might be a way of revisiting um, this material later. Um, I mean, of course, you know, the book is, it, you know, it's written uh, in anticipation of my child, not with. So my actual experience of parenthood, which has been obviously um, wonderful, but also, I'm sure you know, testing uh, at times. <laughs> that's, that's one word yeah, for it. Yeah. Um, so, and it, you know, and also the way in which you know, the way in which parenting kind of changes the way you function in the world and that sort of thing. So those are sort of, I suppose, themes from the book that I might, um, yeah, one day revisit. Although, yeah, who knows what the what the future might hold. Mm. Yeah, I think parenting. That's certainly for my part, parenting was, was both, it was simultaneously so much more wonderful than I expected, but also so much harder than I expected. Yeah. And having hope is so critical because, you know, when you're into the, the fifth year and they're still not sleeping through the night, you, know, <laughs> you have to have hope just to keep going. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah but then your hopes become very specific about your child, right? Like, you know, I hope mm. that they will sleep properly. I hope they don't push anyone at nursery today or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah. But it's, it's such a, a, a an odd thing in, in, in ways what it does to you. Like, I mean, obviously like kind of sometimes really wanting a break, but then just looking at them and just being like, well, how could I, how could I ever want to be anywhere <laughs> else and with you? You said something just now where you said it would be really hard to write this book now. Yeah. I was wondering, you know, have, because you had already written it and you, you have written it. So you've kind of, you've codified, you know, your understanding of hope in, in this book. It has, has given, you know, since publication that the world's had uh, <laughs> bigger issues than I've had in my lifetime, yeah. that's for sure. But has having written the book been useful to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's helped me sort of, in a way, it's sort of, um, I think having written all this stuff about hope before the pandemic has helped me be more hopeful in the face of a pandemic um, because I can look at my own words that I once, once wrote and think, oh, yes, this is this is how we can be hopeful. This is how we can lay claim to hope. 
Um, it's been, I think one of the reasons it would be more difficult to write a book is that like I kind of write, you know, about kind of virtues like solidarity and charity and things like this, which have become so much harder to, you know, so much more compl- complicated to exercise and to, um, yeah, be able to kind of um, honestly write the very, you know, we can we can rationally cite the, uh, cultivating these virtues as a as a source of hope has become a, a lot harder in the face of a pandemic and what it's done to us, um, and also just the way in which society is sort of going as a result of a pandemic, the things we've um, had to give up and the ways we've become isolated from each other. And the kinds of divisions that it's opened up and the kind of ways in which, you know, the, the ways in which it's effects of hit and how much, how disproportionately it's hit certain portions of society and how little charity people really have in a lot of cases to the people who are worst affected by it. It's, it's been a very difficult, been very challenging as a result of that. But it's been nice to be able to, and also to be released at the time it was, it's been, um, it's, it's helped sort of keep you going, I think because I can look back at my own words and think, you know, this guy had a point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This guy knew what he was talking about. Yeah, this about. guy knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I, however, have been worn down by 18 months of looking after a toddler in a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Tom, what is, what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment or future projects? You know, just uh, trying to get by, really. <laughs> yeah, other than the tiny child. <laughs> yeah, I've got a tiny child, uh, you know, trying to find as much work as possible to keep funding his lifestyle. I've got, uh, I'm working on a, on a proposal of a moment for a, a, another book, which I'm I'm superstitious about talking about mm. because um, it may not come to anything. You need to have more hope. I need to have more hope. I do have, well, yeah, but I need to, I think it's <laughs> just a thing. I think, you know, um, <laughs> one sort of uh, way of thinking about this though is um, a lecturer of a department where I did my PhD had this line that, Philosophers tend to research things they don't understand. Um, so, um, you know, ethicists are actually often really bad people. Um, and uh, if, if you're researching hope, you, 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 you probably struggle to, to remain hopeful. Um, and I think that's certainly true of, of uh, uh, you know, of me. I, you know, the reason why I need a kind of philosophical account of hope is because otherwise I find it very difficult to, to lay claim to it. And, you know, but also I have, you know, I, I, the account of a book is supposed to be compatible with the most sort of desperate pessimism. As long as I remain sort of as pessimistic as I can, as, as I am, then I can sort of still tell myself there's some rational things to hope for. Maybe, maybe that's my thinking. But yeah, maybe, maybe I do need to have more, more, more hope and more confidence in how things are going to go with my work. But uh I, I choose to be superstitious in this case. I choose to be irrational, perhaps, in this case. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye out for yeah. whenever it does appear. Whatever happens. Yes, yeah. excellent. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time this morning. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Tom Wyman for joining us on today's podcast. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out more details about our online creative writing courses and all of our other programmes and events at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. 
As a UK registered charity, we do rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page, which would be absolutely lovely. And another way you can support us is to follow the podcast, leave us a review, leave us a rating, because it does help other people to find us. And in fact, if you have writer friends who are not listening and you think they'd enjoy it, then do tell them about us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.